Welcome to the Sideline Podcast. Today is Monday, April 20th, and we've got plenty of storylines to get to. My name is Justin Berger, and I am joined by Doug Watley and Alec Kieser. We've got a great interview with Tampa Bay Rays in-game reporter Trisha Whitaker coming up just a little bit later, as well as a new edition of our totally original Best of segment. But I think we would be remiss if we did not start today, gentlemen, with the thing that is dominating news across the world, the Michael Jordan, not Michael Jordan, but the Last Dance documentary about the 97-98 Bulls team, which is really the Michael Jordan documentary. Um, generally, I want I know we all watched it last night. I want to get your thoughts about what you think so far about the first couple episodes. Yeah, to start off, the whole media landscape was really expecting this to be great. There were such high expectations going into it. Everyone would be watching. No sports are going on, haven't been going on for a month now. And the expectations were hit and beyond that. And so we'll get into specifics, but just overall reactions, I thought it was entertaining. I know some people had some skepticism about how the um, actual documentary went from 1983 to later in their career, then back and forth. But I thought the production was insanely good. The interviews, you got cameos from Bob Knight to Michael Wilbon to Magic Johnson. And of course, the one guy that had to agree to this whole thing, Michael Jordan, for it to happen. And it all just flowed together really nicely. So this was something that was going to be talked about, whether it was great, whether it was not well done, whatever it was, it was going to be the lead story on Monday morning. So overall, I loved it. Obviously from Chicago, it taught me a lot about the Bulls that I did not know. And I'm just kind of happy that we finally got something that we could all bond together and watch. Yeah, it was definitely something that everybody's been sitting on. I think even when ESPN announced that they were going to push it up, um, having to wait until April 19th to watch the first and second episode um, even gave you time to build up anticipation. Uh, some of the things I think that I really had going for it, aside from everybody having to stay inside because of coronavirus, was that um, it comes out, I think, yesterday that Jordan greenlit the documentary during the 2016 finals. Yep. So, um, like everybody can't stop talking about today, the Jordan versus LeBron GOAT debate. Um, it seems like he wanted to remind everybody how he used to operate back in the day and, and probably people who grew up on LeBron and only know LeBron. Okay, well, let's, let's remind everybody who Michael Jordan is. I think the tweets, um, again, because everybody's watching this, the tweets that have come out of it are hilarious. Everybody's live tweeting. Everybody's staying up. Everybody's saying that they would watch all 10 episodes um, in a single night. And I think that's the third thing that they have going for them is that they're holding on to the episodes. They easily could have dropped all 10 yesterday and everybody would have blew through all 10 and we would have talked about it for a week, maybe two, and then it would have fizz- I mean, it probably would have fizzled off because that's like a, you feed um, somebody all the information at once. Um, now, like, the only thing anybody can talk about is, is waiting on episodes three and four. Like, I, you, I could have sat there and watched 10 hours of TV last night, but now i got to wait until next week. Like, I, I, I people said- coming back. I said to my brother, we watched it together, and I was like, I could sit down for eight more hours and just finish this thing right now. And I didn't blink twice. Like, you, you didn't blink during the whole thing. It was, when it finished, I was like, that's it? We're done already? It's yeah. been two hours? It was nuts. And every time you turned away from the TV, you missed something. You had to rewind it to go right. back. Like, I, I, I didn't even see that they called Barack Obama a former Chicago resident. <laughs> like, that's hilarious. That, well, let's start there with some of the uh, the titles for some of the important people 
that uh, they interviewed. So my big three that they did last night were Barack Obama, 44th president of the United States. His, he was listed as former Chicago resident. Bill Clinton, another former president, was listed as former Arkansas governor. He was, of course, talking about Scottie Pippen Um, because that's Pippen is from Arkansas and also Bob Costas who is one of the most beloved honored sportscasters of all time just said WGN Chicago reporter 1979 to 1980 it was it was just they did things that applied only to the documentary which was in itself very original and cool yeah that was never really at least from documentaries that I've seen they've never been that specific obviously the the cast in this documentary has great names that have bigger titles but i was watching with my dad and my dad's a chicagoan through and through he's lived here his whole life and he did not even know bob costas worked at wgn for one single year from 79 to 80 so just little facts like that like if they said that bob costas was a play-by-play reporter studio reporter for espn wherever he worked that would be information that everyone already knew. But the way that they phrased it and gave the specific titles to be specific to this documentary and kind of get an angle that has that, that helps the documentary is really cool and good idea. Well, I mean, it's it's certainly trendy because that's when I woke up this morning on Twitter, that's all I saw is like, I'm just going to start calling Barack Obama former Chicago resident or Bob Costas, you know, all that's it's it is very and like Michael Wilbon, who's worked at ESPN for 20 years. It's like Washington Post reporter for 30 years. That was his title. Um, and I think the other big storyline, our new public enemy number one has to be Jerry Krause, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, he was like you said, public enemy number one during the time during the 90s. I was talking to my dad about this. He said that everyone really hated him. You know, he was a guy that obviously you see now in the documentary that people just made fun of. He is the general manager. He assembled one of the greatest teams ever. He was a scout before he was a GM. He knew how to recognize talent. And in that aspect of his job, unbelievable. A plus, he got rid of Charles Oakley, which was a a huge deal because Oakley was one of the best players at the time for the Bulls to get Cartwright. But Cartwright ended up being even a more important piece and fit better with the Bulls. So I think stuff like that you see how great of a gm he could have been but then his ego was the thing that got in the way and it proved to be the end of this whole thing yeah the um i think the craziest quote that came out of the first episode was that he sits there and tells phil jackson that he can win 82 games this year and he's still not coming back to coach the team the next year which is why i I don't understand that type of control or why i don't I guess we're going to find out because there are eight more episodes, probably how that relationship soured. I kind of enjoy the way they're doing it, how they're, they're bouncing around between like they set the stage for the 98 or 97, 98 season, but then they jump back to high school. I just wish they spent a little more time on Jordan's recruitment because I know North Carolina was kind of a late player in that. And in the, in the brief time it spent talking about it in the documentary, it kind of seemed like it was there was no other question about it. He was just going to UNC, but I think UN or North Carolina State, NC State was was um pretty much going to end up with Jordan till the last like well, one of the last few months. 
While we're on talking about UNC, I thought every single word that Roy Williams had to say was incredibly informative, and he's incredibly whether you're a Duke fan or not, or a UNC fan, whatever you're, uh, uh, wherever you lie on that. Uh, Roy Williams is incredibly well spoken, and he was at UNC, was an assistant coach at the time when Jordan was there. So I thought that because Dean Smith is now no longer with us, so we can't get his words. Um, but being able to hear from a top assistant who's won four national championships is one of a kind. Yeah, I think that's also a huge win for UNC because look at this recruiting pitch that – not that he wasn't using it already because he physically coached Jordan, but you get to sit in front of the country and talk about how great Michael Jordan was. Well, what does that say to a college kid who wants to go to North Carolina? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that spoke to me. I don't even play basketball. I'm already in college. I, do, I want – I did while we were talking about Kraus. I did want to touch on the positives and the negatives because there are both positives. He was a genius, just from a GM standpoint, just assembling teams. A genius, and it's not he didn't assemble one championship team. The three, both the three peats, if you look at them separately, were pretty much different teams aside from Jordan and Pippen. He had to redo it again in the, was the second one started in '95, right? Yeah, because '98 was the last year. Or 96, so the 95 was the... 96, 97, 96, 98 97, were the championships, right. years they won. Um, but he had to do it twice. So I was really impressed with that. Now, negatives, he was impatient, irritable. Uh, he thought that... I mean, he, it was kind of very God-complexy, um, where he thought he was... His quote about players and coaches don't win uh, game or championships organizations do sure but players and coaches win championships uh, if without Phil Jackson without Michael Jordan you don't or Scottie Pippen you don't win championships and no matter who you go out and get Jerry Krause you're not going to win a championship um, so that was that was his relationship with the players especially Pippen in that contract seven years 18 million dollars in his prime was ridiculous and what he did with Phil Jackson, like you said, Keys, where he said, even if you win 82 games, you're not coming back. I don't know how you take – you have to be able to take a step down off your pedestal and realize I need to re-sign these players or I need to deal with this coach who I may not personally like but who is the best thing for my franchise. Yeah, his pettiness just got in the way of everything. You saw the story about how his stepdaughter was getting married and he invited all the players, all the players' wives – he even invited Tim Floyd, who he went on a fishing trip with, was interested in him coaching the next year, doesn't invite Phil Jackson. Like, come on, it's your head coach. He won you five titles. I don't care how much you don't like the guy. He made your career in a sense and made it all possible. So stuff like that really just made me frustrated. And it's funny because Jerry Reinsdorf, if you look the whole management and not just um, not just Kraus, but both the combination of the two Jerry's was very interesting because Reinsdorf is still the the owner of the Bulls and the White Sox too and he has not changed as an owner he's loyal about um his players and his his management specifically like we talked about last week Garpax the Bulls management the current management now uh gone as of last week just way too loyal they stayed there for way too many uh, losing seasons and it was just very interesting to see how he saw the Jerry Krause thing go down and he really hasn't changed which is upsetting to me as a Chicagoan 
I'm um I'm pretty sure I could be wrong and this may be something I saw in passing, but I'm pretty sure uh, Kraus retired in 03. Right. But I think he was hired as a, a White Sox scout in 2010 for a couple years. So Reinsdorf went back to him. But, Doug, you uh, you had mentioned to us earlier that you heard that there might even be a bigger villain in this documentary in the upcoming uh, episodes. Yeah, I was listening to a, uh, a podcast. Waddle and Sylvie is my favorite radio host in Chicago. They're on ESPN 1000. Um, they interviewed Jason Hihir. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name. H-E-H-I-R. And he's the director of this documentary series. And what he told Waddle and Sylvie was that Isaiah Thomas would be not the worst portrayed, but when the players and, and the people in it look at the documentary, he would look worse in the series. And I said, well, if that's the case, then how the heck is that going to be worse than Jerry Krause? Because right now, Everyone's looking at Jerry Krause saying, this guy's the, the demon, he's the devil, he's the worst. And somehow the director of this whole thing thinks that Isaiah Thomas is going to be portrayed in a, in a worse sense. So I don't know what that's going to look like. I'm kind of interested to see what that's yeah, that's turn out as. And, and you're, going, you're going semi-viral off that. So if you don't, go follow Doug Watley on Twitter, <laughs> at Doug Watley. Yes, at Doug Watley. Yeah, throw him some love. But yeah, no, it's insane that you can watch the first two episodes of this with the pretext of that in mind and think, well, what could possibly be coming about Isaiah? But you know, it's it's the relationship between Isaiah and MJ is the reason why he wasn't on the Dream Team. Right. Which is very so interesting, be interesting because he was one of the best point guards of all time. I mean, he's got to be top three, top five. Um, and in that era, there is a cut. There is like Magic was towards his latter end of his career. But John Stockton was in there too. Besides those two, maybe Isaiah's the next man up. Yeah, I I do. While we're talking about uh, while we're talking about Isaiah, but while we're talking about enemies of the program, yeah. Um, Jerry Krause's relationship with Phil Jackson was one that stuck out to me. We all know Phil Jackson, eleven-time um, NBA champion as a coach, two times as a player. He is a genius and I don't think that's stretching the word at all ego certainly but I think you have to bear with that when you know what you at that point in his career he had already won five championships as a coach and I think he he was barely in his 50s so you have a guy that young who could potentially coach your team for the next 20 years you have to say look I'll deal with this crap if he can bring us more rings and then he went on to win six more with the Lakers, or five more with the Lakers. So you, you just, this, for us, for us growing up, Phil Jackson was the coach of the Lakers. We knew him as Kobe's guy. But you get to peek back into what he started as, Bulls assistant, um, and then on, on his way to becoming the best NBA coach of all time, probably. I mean, I'm just looking at this at the present day, um, and it's like telling Steve Kerr, even if you win another championship, we're getting rid of you. You're you're shipping out. I'm right. sorry. We we don't even have a great replacement behind you. It's some guy that I like going fishing with. He's going to replace you. It's like how can you do that? It's nuts. I think the the at least my favorite thing to come out of the first two episodes, besides all the Jordan quotes and quotes about Jordan, like um, Bird calling him God disguised as Michael Jordan after he dropped. Well, actually. All right, I, I'm glad I said that, though, because it reminded me that the the best story out of that is that Bob Cousy, the night before 
um, Jordan drops 63 in the TD Garden, takes money from him on the golf course. Yeah. It's an incredible story. And, and that pissed them off so much they went and dropped 63. And they still lost. It's nuts. Yeah. But yeah, that Larry, was that- Larry Jordan saying hands on sight for every time he lost, complete gold. Uh, the uh, <laughs> the way they lost, covered that onside, it's great. The way they covered that '86 Celtics Bulls um, series was, and for I didn't even like that's so off my radar. That was incredible just to watch those first two games, um, and you just kind of see where Jordan is going in all this. But looking forward, the next two episodes. We're going to get some bad boys in them, which I think everyone in the world is looking forward to because they kind the bad boys were the, the precedent to the Bulls era, if you will. The, the bad boys connected the 80s with the 90s. Yeah, it's going to start with episode three being kind of like how episode two was a spotlight on Scottie Pippen. Apparently, episode three is going to be mainly with Dennis Rodman, who is kind of the best, best of both worlds. He was with the Pistons for a little bit, also with the Bulls. So he experienced both. Um that rivalry, like I said, it sucks because none of us were around to see this. We're just told stories and shown videos about what happened in that era. But when you look at rivalries right now, you see what Warriors, Cavs for like a couple of years, uh, the Thunder were the there for a little friends. bit. All the yeah, guys are friends. Yeah, exactly. When you see the the bad boys versus the Bulls, they absolutely despise each other. They were getting pushing matches, and the fact that they're both two physical teams with the Pistons obviously known for being that tough bully ball guy and the Bulls having Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, three of the best defenders in the time. It's just nuts to think about how those two teams can go at each other and, and respect that respect each other, but also be so competitive. I, I I'm look, like I said, I'd watch all 10 episodes right now if you let me, but Sunday night is appointment television now. That's for the next four weeks. It's appointment television. That's awesome. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. I do want to ask you before we move on. Everyone, did everyone catch the Kenny Main commercial? I One of it. ESPN's best analysts, in my opinion. I think he's the funniest one there yeah. since uh, Stuart Scott died. But they did. They like superimposed Kenny's oh, voice. Yeah, that was a good one. I did onto a broadcast he did in the nine in '98, I think. It was very funny. If you missed it and you recorded the episode, go back good. and watch it. It was in the first episode. Did you, did believe, you get fooled by it? I did it first. I thought, but then when he said, like, you'll be watching during a pandemic or something, yeah. I was like, oh, okay. And everything okay. will be, I think, I don't know what the word he used, but I think he said something like, everything will be called lit or something like that. Where it's like, yeah, well, yeah. Well, this can't be in, from the 1990s. This is 2020. <laughs> All right. So obviously next Monday we'll have uh, – episode three and four breakdown as well as the draft breakdown we have that to look forward to um, but for now let's get to our interview with Trisha Whitaker we now welcome to the show Trisha Whitaker Tampa Bay Rays in-game reporter for Fox Sports Florida Trisha how are you what have you been doing the last couple months a whole lot of nothing Justin a whole lot of nothing counting down the days until baseball starts reading all the plans that um could send us to Arizona, could send us to Florida, and Arizona, whatever. So basically just counting down the days. Um, I'm in Indianapolis, hanging out with my fiance, and that's about it. <laughs> so we definitely want to talk about what you've heard with uh, pertaining to the baseball season, but 
I want to start with like this uh, cult following that have you been watching Tiger King, The Last Dance? Ah. Any, uh, any trendy stuff you've been doing? Okay, so hot take. I think Tiger King is weird. I watched <laughs> the first episode and I was like, this is so, I mean, I could see how people get like pulled into it, but like, it was just too bizarre for me. I was like, what is going on? Like, I, why do I care about these people? I don't know, it was just bizarre. So I refuse to watch Tiger King. I watched one episode and I was like, no, I'm done. Um, the Last Dance, watched the first episode yesterday. Um, obviously Michael Jordan and the Bulls of the 90s specifically, it's like fascinating. I thought the timeline of the first episode was weird. Um, they like started at the end of the Bulls, Scottie Pippen, Jordan era, that thing. And then they all of a sudden went back to like high school. It was bizarre to me, but I mean, it's, probably going to get better and it's fascinating stuff. So I enjoyed the first episode. I have not watched the second episode yet or the rest of them. So I, I, I will watch it because it's one of those things where like, if you don't watch it, you're totally out of the loop. So yeah, it's one of the sports. It's just, I mean, it's our sports story right now. So if you're not watching, oh, yeah. you're missing out. <laughs> it's, it's what we've got. Um, so I think the way we want to do this is let's just start at the beginning. Um, you graduated from IU in 2012 which puts you in Bloomington in 2011 for the Watford shot. <laughs> At that point, were you covering the team or were you simply a fan? I was covering the team. I was there when it happened. Um, in fun fact, Christian Watford and Victor Oladipo were my neighbors in college when the watch shot happened. Um, and they lived right across the street from me. And we were all pretty good friends. I still talk to them off and on just because, I mean, we went through a lot with, together at IU. Um, and I was a reporter. What was I covering? I was covering the game for IU Sportcom. Rest in peace, IU Sportcom. <laughs> um, it's most comparable to the Hoosier Network that you guys have now. Um, I was covering the game for them. I was also an intern for WTHR, Channel 13 at the time. So I was helping out with them, helping out. What does an intern really do for a news station besides hold a microphone? But um, I was sitting in the press row and I remember when he hit the shot, I like wasn't fully watching because I was so nervous. I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And so my hands were like this and like out of the corner of my eye. It's like one of those freeze frames. You know how like in life you remember where you were when and everything? Mm -hmm. It was one of those freeze frames where I was like, it went in. Oh my gosh, it went in. It went in. And I remember at the beginning of the game, there was the Kentucky media. They were sitting in front of me and this guy turned around and he looked at me and he goes, is it always this insane here? Because I mean, it was deafening from the moment you walked into assembly hall. You knew from the moment you walked in that they were winning that game. Uh, and I looked at him and I go, yeah, it is, but today it's definitely up a few notches. But yeah, when he hit that shot, uh, the good old days. It, it's just, it's like almost bittersweet to think about it, to be honest, because like we're still holding on to that. That's not a good thing. Like we, we shouldn't still be holding on to the watch shot and winning the Big Ten title outright. Like I loved that team. I love those guys, but like, and it has nothing to do with them. It's just since then, what do we have? What do we have? No. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because you just said people always look at that watch shot and say that was the one moment 
And it's funny because Kentucky went on to go further. Oh, yeah, they won the national championship. They beat Indiana in the tournament. I was um, there for that too in Atlanta. Yeah. But, you know, Christian Watford hit one shot that was a buzzer beater on ESPN. Um, so obviously a great moment. But for you in college, obviously that's up there. Were there any other moments that you covered that you remember? Kind of like you said, that you remember where you were, who you were with, um, kind of type of that nature? That was the best one. And let me preface this by saying, when I say we're still holding on to that, I mean, I'm still holding on to it because mm -hmm. it is a picture in my living room. It's blown up like the size of a big screen TV above my couch. So I'm putting myself in that category. Um, and also, fun fact, Dan Shulman, who called that game with Dickie V, he is now the Blue Jays play-by-play -play guy. So I'm around him a lot because the Rays play the Blue Jays all the time. Right. And I talked to Dan the other day not the other day, what in the world, it was May. I talked to Dan last year, and um, what day is it, really? Um, I talked to Dan last year, and he was like, you know what, that was my favorite game I've ever called. And Dan has called a lot of amazing games. Like, he does, he did baseball for ESPN, Now he still does college basketball. He calls MLB games every day. Um, and so for me, Doug, that is it. That's it. That's the best that was the best um, day of my student professional career. Um, and honestly, it was probably the most fun game I've ever covered, to be honest. Um, the Rays clinching in Toronto was really fun this past season. But anyways, that was like, I mean, I know ultimately they didn't do much. They lost to Syracuse in Sweet 16. But um, it, it still was in memory. I mean, that was when, I mean, we really thought this was the turning point. Like, the darkness is gone, you know? Like, we're gonna be fine. We weren't. <laughs> um, but that was still, and, and again, I think it probably was more especially special for me because those guys were like my classmates. Those were my friends, like, um, and I still keep in touch with them. Like, you know, it's, it, it was special, not just because of that, but because, you know, you formed a relationship with those people and you, and now, like, when they went to the, when Christian Watford and Cody Zeller and Vic, now with the Pacers, it's like I've covered them through that entire process. Now Vic is one of the best players in the NBA, and I covered him when he came to the Pacers. I remember the first, I remember the press conference, I was there. So, so what, I, what was that, because uh, at that time you were at CBS in Indianapolis, so what was that like when the Pacers traded away Paul George, who was the franchise for eight years, and they get Victor Oladipo, who is a Indiana guy. Half the state loves him already. And then they also end up getting Sabonis as well, who's turned out to be a fantastic player for them. So what was covering that like for the city to lose one superstar and then kind of get one back? It was insane. Like, so Paul, actually, if I'm, this is crazy. So that same year, 2011, uh, the shot year, I was also an intern. Let's see, was it 2012? One of the two. I was an intern for the Pacers when Paul George came to the Pacers and nobody knew who he was. Nobody wanted him. Like he was drafted out of Fresno State. And when he was drafted, everybody was like, what? And then everybody loved him. And then they didn't like him anymore. Um, that's the story of being a sports hero, right? Um, but yeah, when they traded for Vic, oh, it was just like, you were kind of like, whoa, what's happening? I, I remember that too, because so many 
I won't say who, but so many sportscasters and voices in Indianapolis were like, this is horrible. This is the worst decision ever. Vic has not established himself in the NBA. And I'm not going to brag on myself, but I will. I was like, <laughs> no, no, guys, this is a good decision. Vic is coming home. Like, he's coming home. Like, tickets are going to sell a little bit better. People are going to be more interested in the Pacers. You are underestimating how much people here love Vic. And underestimating Vic is an emotional guy. and not in a bad way, in a good way. When he plays, he gets motivated really easily. And he's motivated by this state. And so I remember thinking, I was like, no, no, this is a good idea. And I went to his press conference and I did a one-on-one -on -one interview with him. And I remember being like, Vic, how's it feel to be home? And he was just like, it feels amazing. You know, he was like, this place embraces me. Why would I not want to be here? I know that I'm going to do something special here. And yeah, I, I just, I thought it was great. It, it was really cool. But Paul leaving, I remember covering the game when he came back. And I will never forget that game. It was insane. I mean, there was a lot of hostility. Like, people were, people were still mad at him. Like, I remember one guy was holding up a sign that said, like, what did it say? It was like, we needed a leader, and now we have one. His name's Vic, or something like that. Like, and they held it up at Paul George, and I was just like, this is cold-blooded. But... It was pretty cool because you got to see like the Pacers haven't always had like a great fan base. Right. But when all that happened, you really got to see the basketball fans in Indiana show up. It was cool. That um that same year in 2017, you were you were obviously still in Indy and Andrew Luck didn't play that entire year mm -hmm. um with a mystery shoulder injury. He was in Europe. He was reported to be in Europe. Um, the Colts were terrible that year. How, what, how do you cover a team that you know is going to be terrible for 16 games and with so much, you know, kind of mystery around them? That was like the most bizarre thing in the world because like I remember covering Colts games and like they would win and we would hardly talk about the win. We would talk about Andrew Luck. When is he coming back? Do you have an update on Andrew Luck? It was the most bizarre thing I've ever covered, to be quite honest, because it wasn't just 2017. It was like two years of speculation around Andrew Luck's injury. And it wasn't just his shoulder. It was his lacerated kidney. Um, and then it was just insane. Like, I, and then, like, I remember I had finally taken the job at the race, and I remember reading that he was retiring, and I was like, what the heck is going on? This story just keeps getting more bizarre. Um, it, was, it was tough to cover the team in 2017, but honestly, you weren't even really covering the results. Like, you, you just weren't. You were covering, is he coming back? Is he not coming back? Everybody knew that season, you know, it wasn't going to be what they had hoped. Um, and so you covered Andrew Luck. You didn't really cover the Colts. I mean, I remember staking out at the Colts complex in the car for like hours, just waiting for Jim Irsay to see if he'll give a statement, waiting for anything, any sort of news, and then going live, you know, when the news did break. It was so bizarre. It still is bizarre. It still is bizarre. Yeah. Andrew Luck mm -hmm. retired from the NFL, and people are still talking about if he's ever going to come back. It's because it, he's a, still a player who's really in his prime. But you mentioned Tampa – and I want to ask, how, how, did, how does that come up? How did you end up in Tampa? So um, I've always wanted to do um, sideline reporting. I guess with baseball, there's no sideline. In-game reporting, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, I've always wanted to do that. 
um, especially for a regional sports network. So generally, not all broadcasters, but you try to work your way up. Um, and I was in local news for six years, and I had a lot of great experiences there, and I learned a lot. Um, but working for a regional sports network um, is awesome. <laughs> and working for a team is great. That's what I always wanted to do. I always loved baseball. I grew up watching the Cubs with my dad. Um, so that job came open. I called my agent. He, I applied, and it took – the process was, I mean, you know, I had to do Skype interviews, I had to do phone interviews, I had to do in-person interviews, I had to do an audition at the field, um, I had to interview with the team president, I had to interview with the Fox, you know, higher ups. So it was a long process, but this is the type of job I've always wanted. Um, and I had more fun last year than I could have ever imagined. Um, it was awesome, it was, it was so much fun. So that's how it came about. When you were with the Rays, or you still are with the Rays, um you obviously had the eventually once sports all come back um obviously the postseason was a big thing for you guys was that from the start of the season obviously um you have the Red Sox and the Yankees in that division what were the fans thinking for the expectations wise was were they expecting you into the postseason right away or was that kind of a late season push for them to be that good I think they were expecting them to be good because the Rays had just come off a 90-win season. And the thing about that 90-win season, normally you win 90 games, you're in. But they're in the same right. division with the Red Sox and the Yankees. And that year just happened to be the same year that the Red Sox and the Yankees both, both notched triple-digit win seasons. So, so crazy. like, yeah, I can't remember the exact numbers. Like 106 or 103? I don't know. It was insane. Like, what? That doesn't the, – yeah. But anyways – they, they, it was just bad luck that year. Um, so I think they expected, hey, oh, who? Um, I think they expected um, them to be good. Um, and here's the other thing. The Rays won 96 games and got the wild card. That's, I wanted to ask you about like, that because what? they it's were so the baffling. fifth seed in the playoffs. And the, the Indians won 93 games, missed the playoffs. <laughs> How? What was the attitude in the clubhouse? Because when you win 96 games normally, you're a lock for the playoffs. Oh, a lock, yep. But this yeah. team that was one of the best teams of the season last year was fighting tooth and nail to get into the playoffs. So how did they – they had to sustain that success for 162 games. What did you notice about their attitude down they the stretch? I think one of the things that drives this team is that they know that they're like, I don't want to use the word underdogs because they're not underdogs. They're perfectly capable of doing this. They're professional athletes. They have an amazing pitching staff, but they're used to being overlooked because they're not in a market like New York. They're not in a market like Boston. Small um, market, not huge names on the team either. No, I mean, these are, and, and they, they're kind of like, the Moneyball team, you know, mm -hmm. um, they had the lowest payroll of baseball, like, and they did this. You're looking at teams like the Phillies who went out and spent an ungodly amount of money on Bryce Harper and they're not in the postseason. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. it's just, I think they're used to that. So I think that's kind of what drove them and they never got too high and they never got too low. Like, and I know that sounds so cliche, but it was so key to their mentality. And I remember down the stretch, constantly asking the guys, you know, you're still fighting for a spot in the postseason with the Indians and you guys have already won like 80 some games. 
you're probably going to win 90 games and you still won't know if you've made it. And their response was just kind of always like, we're used to that and we perform better with our backs against the wall. And they do. And they did. They always have. And don't ask me about game five of the ALCS. <laughs> who were the key? Who were the key personalities on that team? Because guys from uh, the interview you did in the Rays clubhouse after the clincher, which I want to ask you about a couple of them, but I specifically want to highlight how interesting was it covering a guy like Tommy Pham? Oh, Tommy! Uh, you heard stories think, about him in class. Oh, you did. Friends <laughs> in class, Doug. Um, he, um, Tommy was. Tommy and I had a good relationship. Um, you never knew what you were going to get from him in an interview. Um, I remember specifically after one interview and he, Tommy is a man of his word. He will do what he says he's going to do. And he does not mince his words. He tells you what he thinks and it, and he backs it up. He, he doesn't shy away from it, which I really respect. Um, but in an interview one time they played the Orioles, Tommy at the walk off, um, a couple pitches before he hit the walk-off, the pitcher had almost hit his head. Um, and Tommy, afterwards, I asked him, the first question I asked him was about the walk-off. You know, obviously, duh, the walk-off. Well, he didn't really answer the question. He said, he, this was live TV. He looked, like, I think he looked straight at the camera or something. And he just goes, the first pitch, he threw it at my head, and I wanted to kill him. I'm glad we won. And I was like, oh my gosh, Tommy, <laughs> Tommy. But, um, but it was that like passion and like bluntness that you grew to love. At first, it was, I didn't know how to handle him. Um, but I think once you um, show him the respect that he wants and also um, don't waste his time and ask the right questions, then he'll respect you back and he'll answer your questions even if he answers them like that. Um, I remember that he got picked off at first base one time and the Rays lost to the Red Sox. And I went in the clubhouse to interview him and I was like, oh gosh, he's gonna be mad. He's not gonna wanna do an interview. I was totally wrong. He was sitting there waiting for me to get into the clubhouse so that I could interview him because he wanted to take responsibility for losing the game. And that was when he looked at the camera and he goes, I'm not gonna say the word because it's a bad word. Uh, he looks in the camera and he goes, it's pretty simple. I effed up. I effed up. And I was just like, okay, I can't air that, but thank you for the honesty. <laughs> um, he was great. He was a great personality. Um, he's with the Padres now. Um, but we've got lots of other personalities on the team. None quite like Tommy, though. I also wanted to ask you about the Johnny Davis interview. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> there were a couple. <laughs> Specifically the one in the clubhouse, because you, you are interviewing a bunch of the guys and also like Charlie Morton, um, who are like excited, but like kind of don't want to deal with it. And then there's Johnny Davis, who's <laughs> screaming into the camera and just so ecstatic to be there. And so what was what was that like? Yeah, so that interview was one that it went viral. I mean, it was it kind of blew up um, because Johnny was in the Mexican League like a month ago before that before they won in Toronto and clinched the postseason. And he made his MLB debut and got his first MLB hit in LA when we played the Angels, 30 minutes from his home that he grew up in, in Compton. 
it was kind of like a fairy tale ending to the season for Johnny Davis. And then he was with the team when they clinched the postseason in Toronto. And so he just is looking at the camera and he, he is so pumped up. His energy was what we all needed. It was refreshing, you know, and he was just screaming at the camera. Um, and I think in those situations, what's important as a reporter, and I, again, I, I'm not like saying that I always do this perfectly or anything, but one of the things that's, things that's important in that situation is to let the moment breathe and to let him say what he needs to say. And so when he's going on and on and on, and he's like, whoa, let's go. It was important for me to let him finish his thoughts um, because he had, he had something to say. Yeah. I'm just a kid from Compton. Who am I? Like, I was in the Mexican League two months ago. And if I would have interrupted that with a follow-up question when he, was, when he paused for like half a second, it would have ruined the moment. Um, and so I think that's what I love the most about it was it was just pure, it was childlike excitement. And it was so mm -hmm. refreshing. And then you have guys like Charlie Morton, who he's been there. He's won a World Series. He was on the mound in Game 7 of the World Series when the Astros won it. He's standing in the corner of the clubhouse with his iPhone taking a video of the rest of the guys celebrating because he wanted to savor that moment of some of these young guys who'd never been there before, savoring like a moment that he'll probably remember forever because he was the veteran of the group who got to watch young guys' dreams be fulfilled. Yeah. So when you were when you were covering uh, the Rays, you went to different ballparks. I realized you're a Chicago Cubs fan. I never knew that. Um, yeah, I'm also a big Cubs fan. Yeah. This was the well, year I'm that. I'm not a fan anymore, but I well, grew up with Cubs. I'm a Rays fan. <laughs> that is true. Um, and this was the year that the AL East 2020 was the AL East was supposed to play the NL Central too. Don't die. And so. <laughs> God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, but I'm guessing Wrigley Field is one of the places that you've been to uh, before. For you covering different uh, locations and going different places, what were some of the stadiums that you've enjoyed going to and kind of that you were the most excited to travel to? Well, Doug, I was excited to go to Chicago. Well, I'll be honest. That was July 5th. That was my birthday. And I was probably going to go to that game too. It was going to be a 4th of July at Wrigley. Yep. Yep. Uh, um, and the Rays were going to win, so it'd be good. Um, <laughs> I, let's see. Oh, man, I know Rays fans don't like when I say this, but I do think Fenway is cool. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think Fenway is cool. Um, I like Boston as a city. Um, in terms of, like, the best park, like, um, with the coolest, like, field and stadium and all the cool stuff that would have to be Petco Park in San Diego it's the coolest really? oh my gosh it's like the coolest park you'll ever see um they have like a grocery store inside the the <laughs> stadium they have a park inside the stadium they have all sorts of restaurants I mean it's just it's really really cool I can't even explain it um and let's see, Boston was cool. Toronto as a city is awesome. That's what I miss the most. Oh, this is kind of torture, you guys. That's what I miss the most. I miss like traveling with the team because I travel with the team on the plane and stay at the same hotel. So like you get to know that group of people so well. Like I get to know their families, their wives, even their kids. Like, you know, it's just like you're always around them. And so I just miss that. And I miss going to Toronto. I miss I miss going to Boston. I miss going to New York. I miss going to, you know, everywhere else. It's just even Baltimore. Baltimore's not. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you didn't oh, mention Baltimore. I like Camden, Camden Yards. Camden Yards is awesome. Camden yeah. Yards is really it's a beautiful cool. stadium. 
Oh, it's a gorgeous stadium. Um, the city surrounding it, um, you know, mm. it's fine. But yeah. it's it's not like it's it's not you, you're not like oh woo I'm going to Baltimore. Um, but Camden Yards is awesome. I really enjoy that place. So we're actually really lucky that we have some really cool stadiums to go to in the AL East. New Yankee Stadium stinks. While we're talking about stadiums, what what do you think about the trap? Um, so the trap is one of the things that I feel like people don't talk about with the trap is how, like, obviously fans wouldn't talk about it because you guys don't experience this, but for us, for media members and the team, it's like so accessible. It's so easy to get around. It's not hard to get from place to place. It's not confusing. It's super easy. Um, the trap <laughs> The drop when it's full is like the loud. I, I know like some people don't, they, you guys haven't been there when it's full, but like when it's full, it is the loudest place in the entire world. It's like a tin can. Like games three and four of the ALDS, Rays, uh, Astros at Rays. I mean, it was, it was deafening, deafening. So the drop was awesome. Um, obviously they would prefer to fill it up every time. That doesn't always happen. Um, but when the drop is full, it's great. I don't know that the drop is necessarily the, um, the issue with the attendance. Yeah. I, I've always, people always, when they talk about the Rays, they do bring up the drop. I think it's a, one of the cooler stadiums. It reminds me a lot of the Metrodome where the twins used to play. Mm -hmm. It's just like, there's something about being inside for a baseball game. That's so different. And it's, it's a cool experience. Um, I wanted to ask you about Kevin Cash mm -hmm. and what a man – we've seen what bad managers can do for a team. But when you have a guy like Kevin Cash who his players love him, what kind of a difference do you see on the field and in the clubhouse with that kind of presence? Kevin Cash is awesome. Um, I could not ask for a better manager to cover um, and travel around with 162 games for six months out of the year. One of the things about the Rays organization that every player who comes in says is how it is such a laid back organization and every guy can be themselves. Um, there's a lot of organizations where that is not the case. Um, you know, you're, you're not as laid back. It, it's just, that's just how it is some places. And I'm, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong other places, but for the Rays, it works. The guys can be themselves. And Kevin Cash is a huge part of that. Um, he is so easygoing, so easy to work with. Um, he does a really good job of similar to the entire team, not getting too high and not getting too low. Um, he is very even keeled. And I honestly think that's one of the reasons why the Rays were so successful last year, because he spread that mentality throughout the clubhouse. You don't get too high. You don't get too low. You will celebrate the good moments, obviously, but you're not going to stay there. Right. Until you, you know, when the ALDS or the wild card or whatever, you can celebrate that. But he does a good job of keeping his team balanced and he's so easy to work with for me. Um, and I'm so thankful he's the manager because people don't realize how much that can affect everything about an organization from the players to the PR staff, to the training staff, to the front office. I mean, if your manager is not easy to work with, that affects everyone. 
and it can be toxic. And we're so fortunate to have somebody that is awesome for the organization. I think one of the things that you touched on there was that the differences of like playing in each of the different organizations in the AL East, like you go to Boston and the media there is just vicious. So you're playing in New York and you can't have long hair and you have to shave. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and you also mentioned spending a lot of time around the team. So how influential was Haim Bloom in building this Rays team and what can I expect from him now is Time is awesome. Um, you guys are very lucky. He is another reason why that organization, he's a huge reason why the Rays were so successful last year. And then the year before he built that team and he'll build that team, you know? Um, and he's so smart. He, I was on a panel with him uh, during the season and I was like, why am I on this panel? Like, I don't he's like here and I'm here. Um, he's so smart and He's such a genuine down-to-earth guy. We, so, the, actually, this is bizarre. The day that we found out that the season was all, in all likelihood going to be postponed because of the coronavirus, we were playing the Red Sox in a spring training game. And I remember, I, I, it was the first time I'd seen Haim since he took the job with the Red Sox. And I'm walking past him, and I was like, hey, hi. And it was like seeing like an old friend. Like, he, he's just so relatable. He's kind. Um, he's genuine and he's so smart. And I remember him being like, what do you think is going to happen with the season? And I was just like, it's not looking good. He was like, yeah, I just, this is just bizarre. Um, and it was bizarre, but the Red Sox are so lucky <laughs> and I hate you for taking him from us. Um, it makes me feel very, very good. <laughs> you, you said he just is great. I can't, I can't say enough good things about him. Um, I remember celebrating when they, clinched the postseason in Toronto you know he's walking around the clubhouse with his poncho on and like it just it just it's just it was just such a good atmosphere with him there and I hope that that remains the same without him I'm sure it will so I got one more question and then we'll go a couple rapid fire um the one thing we had not mentioned you is or to you is that I mean the reason Justin and I know you you were a professor last semester so being an adjunct uh professor at IU what like benefit do you get from that both professionally and then personally as well oh my gosh I love teaching um it's the best like the thing about teaching this is so cheesy oh my gosh but (laughs) like it's the most rewarding thing in the world like and I know I remember growing up teachers used to say that to me they were like it's so rewarding to see your students succeed and I'm like I don't know what that means it's so true I'm like There is no better feeling. I could have the best broadcast in the world. Like everything could go so smoothly and it would not even compare to like when I know that one of my students is successful and gets a job out of college or a great internship or something. Um, Like I'm just like beaming with pride because it's so cool to see you guys succeed. Um, And also like teaching you guys teaches me so much too. Like I'll be standing there like giving a, I don't like to call it a lecture. That sounds really weird, but giving a lesson or whatever. And I say something and I'm like, Oh, you know what? I should take my own advice on that because sometimes I, you know, stutter or I say, um, or I use a crutch word or whatever. I learned so much from you guys watching you guys. And I'm just like, so impressed with like some of my students, like you guys are so innovative. Like I just like, I wouldn't think of half the ideas that you guys think of. Like when I'm like, who has ideas for their next package? And you guys are like, I've got this, I've got this. I'm going to go to India and shoot a shrimp cocktail eating contest. I'm like, (laughs) that's amazing. Go. 
Um, it's so much fun. And you guys, the media school has come so far since I was a student. Like, we didn't have what you guys had. And I'm just so proud to see all the success you guys are having. It's so much fun. I love it. Even when, like, some of you guys make me mad and you don't, like, <laughs> do the assignment the right way, I'm like, ugh, you have so much potential, you know? I should stop banging the table. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's, I just love it. I love it. And I'm always, as long as I can do it, I'm going to do it. Well, I speak for me and Doug, I think we've certainly appreciated the guidance. Oh, um, nine, so the two we, and a half hour 930s were a little bit tough, but besides that, yeah. <laughs> everything else Scheduling was good. problem I'm there. considering <laughs> investing in a coffee budget next year for my students. Right, absolutely. <laughs> of course, this um, is right. you guys are done. <laughs> So like, like Doug said, we're going to do a few rapid fire questions. Um, we'll start in Bloomington. What's your favorite restaurant there? Uptown Cafe. Wow, that was quick. All right. Tom Crane <laughs> or Archie Miller? I'm in Bloomington. I'm from Bloomington. Yeah, That's true. Tom Crane or Archie Miller? Oh, that is a horrible question. I do not like <laughs> that. That is TBD. TBD. Tom Crean, I I, uh, well, let me say this, though. I knew Tom Crean far better than I knew Archie Miller. I covered Crean when I was a student, and he, I think he took some sort of, like, pride and joy in watching me, like, um, from when I was a 20-year-old student and didn't know what I was doing to when I was 28 years old and working in Indianapolis, CBS and Fox covering him. So he actually was a huge part of, like, I, I don't know if mentor is the right word, but, like, he was an encouragement to me. Um, he was really helpful. Uh, and he was always so willing to like do interviews whenever I needed him to. Because he really, like the thing with Tom Crean that I think a lot of people forget, um, he really invested in people. Like I know there are some different stories out there about him and I'm not, I'm not saying anything's true or not true. I don't know, I was never in that locker room. But he really invested in people and he invested in me. And I know even today, if I needed something, he would be happy to help. Um, so I, I think I have to say Tom Crean, but not because I don't like Archie, but I just, I covered Archie for two years and that's it. I covered Tom Crean for like six. I think that the three of us are happy with the steady success that we've seen from Archie Miller in his, in his three. I mean, it's all you can really ask for. We're improving. Mm -hmm. um, best unknown story from the 2019 Rays. One time they made me, so <laughs> one time I sang the um, a Lion King song on the bus ride to the hotel. <laughs> Is there a video? No, <laughs> um, absolutely not. I, I think it, it's just kind of like entertainment on the way to the hotel. And so there was a microphone and I got up there and I sang, can you feel the love tonight from the Lion King? How'd it go? What, would you, what grade would you give yourself? Oh, definitely like a C or something. We had just got yeah. off the plane and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I sang, can you feel the love tonight? And it was like my second, <laughs> no, it was my first road trip of the year. So that was my first impression, singing the Lion King a lot. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> um, I guess another one would be. Do you guys remember like the um, the uh, when I was like literally doused in like two Gatorade tubs of ice and it was on Sports Center and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So the reason why that happened was because it was my fault. It was totally my fault. <laughs> so G Man Choi is the one that did it. 
And Tommy Pham had hit the walk-off. It was also the same day when he said he wanted to kill the opposing pitcher. So Tommy had hit the walk-off, and he, G-Man came over and just just didn't even try to pour the Gatorade tub on Tommy. Poured it all over me, and it was shocking. Um, but anyway, G-Man, the backstory to that, which I didn't realize this until a couple days later when G-Man told me, he had doused Willie Adamas earlier in the year after a walk-off. And I stupidly said to him afterwards, you missed me. <laughs> so Famous that immediately put a target on my back for the next one. So I realized I did that to myself. That's a backstory. That's a, that's a, that's an untold story, I guess. That, that was, I guess, throughout starting in, being Bloomington, Green Bay, Indy, or Tampa, What's been your most engaging interview with a player or coach? Either Victor Oladipo or Peyton Manning. I've never done, but here's the thing. I've never done a one-on-one interview with Peyton Manning. Um, But I've been like in his interviews, in his press conferences and all that stuff. And I don't know that there's a player more engaging than him. Um, Yeah. Peyton Manning. Fair but if you're talking like one-on-ones or something, Vic. Definitely Vic, for sure. Uh, bucket list sporting event to cover? World Series. Yeah, I figured. The Rays uh, win World Series, let's be clear. Three adjectives to describe a Sunday in Green Bay on, during <laughs> football season. <laughs> during football season? Mm-hmm. Cold. Boozy. <laughs> um electric how about that electric that's great <laughs> and in your 10 years in the business who is the most talented player you've ever covered Aaron Rodgers sport you want yeah Aaron Rodgers do you have a Rodgers story for us I don't know if I have a good one um he was an interesting guy to cover he is really, really smart. Like, unbelievably smart. Like, yeah. talk to him and you're just like, you're so smart. And like, watching some, covering some of those games, I mean, like, you're just like, it's the fourth quarter, you've got a minute left, and you're down, and, and you're like, I know you're gonna win this game. Like, I know you're gonna find a way to win this game, you know? Um, it was insane. He's definitely probably the most talented, I feel. I mean, that could be argued. Vic is really talented. Andrew Luck was talented. Um, if we're talk- I mean, even if we're talking race car drivers, like Jeff Gordon's really talented. Like, all those guys are talented. But probably Aaron Rodgers on that level is the most talented player I've ever covered. He very much, you know, there is a stereotype behind him that he has a chip on his shoulder. And I would say that that it, 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 he does act like that in interviews. He's very defensive. Um, but I don't know that it's a bad thing. I think he just, he knows what he's doing, right? He knows what he's doing. And he's so smart that like, if you say something that he feels could be misleading when it's aired or printed, he's going to correct you. And he's going to be like, well, I don't think so. This is how I think it is. Um, so, yeah, he's talented and he's really smart, really smart. And before we wrap, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what 
do you know anything? Are we going to get baseball back? The closest thing we have to sports right now, I think, is June 11th. The PGA is coming back. Other than that, we know nothing about the major four sports. Justin, if I knew something, I would have a countdown clock right behind me. And it would be counting down the seconds until the season starts again. I don't know. And that's, here's the thing. People are like, oh, who knows what? The leagues don't even know. You know, like when MLB and the NHL and um, the NBA say, we don't know, they mean they don't know. Because this isn't something that's in their control. This is in the government's control. This is what the virus does. Um, this is the most unknown thing. It's not like a strike either, you know? Like a lot of people yeah. are like, oh, it's similar to a strike. No, it's not at all. Um, this is so out of anyone's control. Um, and they don't know. I mean, the last thing I heard was possibly, and it's what everybody else heard, possibly June. Um, and we might be all in Arizona. You know, we might, it might be like, <laughs> everybody go to Phoenix and that's going to be the season. I mean, how bizarre is that? I can't even imagine. And then the other idea that was floated around was the Grapefruit League and the Cactus League, which would mean that the divisions were realigned. I think with that, we would still be in the Red Sox division. It would be like Red Sox, Orioles, Braves, Braves, Braves or something. Yeah. yeah. Something like that. I don't even know. I mean, it's just, it's bizarre. And then it's like, well, are we playing at the spring training facility? Will the drop be available since we're there anyways? What's going to happen? So when people say they don't know, like they actually mean they don't know. Like in what other situation could you look at the MLB and say they actually don't know when they're going to play and nobody's lying. <laughs> they're telling the truth. They don't know. Justin, I hope that we could do another interview near the end of May where I'm in Arizona and we're getting ready to play baseball. I want us to be yeah. safe. Let me be clear. I want to be safe. I want, if we go back, I want it to be the safest environment possible. Um, but I want to go back. Yeah, I think we're all with you on that one. We'd love to get sports back. Trisha Whitaker, thank you very much for joining us today. Anytime, y'all. Thanks for having me. And you can find Trisha on Twitter, at Trisha Whitaker. Yeah, that was fun. Um, that was the first interview that I've ever done. And I think she gave us a lot of good nuggets. She gave us a bunch of cool stories about you know, famous athletes that we've always wanted to know about. So it was a good time. Yeah, she does a good job showing that she was there in a bunch of places, obviously working in Green Bay, Indy area, now Tampa Bay. She's got a lot of experience already. So obviously a great teacher, even better interview there. Yeah, we're looking forward to having her on again, hopefully in the in the in the near future with some baseball to talk about. Yeah, when when there's baseball. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. And it is coming. So let's get to now what we've all been looking forward to, our best of segment this week. I haven't teased it at all. No one knows what it's about. Well, these guys do, but you don't. We're doing best of retro logos this week. So this there are, again, pretty similar to last week, no wrong answers because there's more than 12 great logos out there. Um, our order this week is going to be Doug, then Alec, then me, and we're going to do snake draft again. So, Doug, I know a lot of pressure on the first pick. Uh, we're all very interested to see who you have. I am going to go with the 1981 to 1993 logo for the Denver Nuggets. And if you've seen this one, it is the pretty much skyline of the Denver Nuggets with rainbow colors in the background. You can see the 
the mountains there too. I just think this is the the coolest thing going on. Um, a great design, colorful, not too much, but not too little. I mean, and you think about some of the players I play with David Thompson, Alex English, just great players representing the logo. Um, that's my clear number one. Yeah. Um, I love that you pulled out the years on that. I think that was one of the things I was trying to dig for. And I, I didn't, I guess I didn't do enough digging because I couldn't find crazy years. But my first pick, um, like I said to you guys yesterday um, when we threw out this idea, um, is the throwback Oakland Athletics elephant logo with the elephant holding a baseball glove on his trunk, standing on a baseball. Um, they wore them with the, those uh, all green and all yellow kind of t-shirt jerseys with the the um finishes on the sleeves and, and around the collar and things like that and I don't, i'm just a huge fan of that logo big fan of that jersey so shout out nick bartonetti <laughs> i thought the a's did a great job with multiple logos the elephant was a classic obviously but i you can't really go wrong with those colors um i agree i the nuggets were my first pick so well done let's there. go good seal um I, that just it's one you like when you see that you know what it's a, it's it's a very cool logo. So first for me, I, so I got two in a row. I'm gonna take the Houston Oilers, the powder blue with the red. Uh, a great guy to look at in the Houston logo is Jeff Fisher with his little quarter ve- uh, vest. That's a great look. Um, I've always loved the powder blues with the red. I think that's a cool look, and I think the Titans should try and incorporate that back into what they're doing now. Uh, so I'll go Houston Oilers. I want to take another football team next, but I'll hopefully they'll be there when it comes back around to me. So for now, I will say the Vancouver Grizzlies. That Ooh, was my number two. You yeah, stole it. That, a classic, um, a classic logo. The teal and it's it's great. It's great. So those are my first two. All right. My second pick actually is a logo that kind of near and dear to me. One of the first, you know how you can go to like a pier or something and you can win those little basketballs or whatever from a fair? Yeah. Well, the first one I ever had was the Maryland Terp with the actual Terp on it, the now defunct logo because if you if you notice during the college basketball season, during the football season, Maryland switched their logo from the actual Terp to just the plain M. It looks stupid. <laughs> I love the Terp. Need more turtles in my life. I absolutely love that logo. I, I think the Terp is a great – I agree. That was on my list too. It's it's a underrated logo. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think Terrapins always have great uh, jerseys and logos, so not a bad pick at all. Um, so I got two now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. First, I'm going to go – actually, I'm going to go two baseball ones. And number one is going to be the 1993 to 2011 – Florida Marlins. I I think that their logo. I, I love their colors. To be honest, I always oh. thought that they were sick. You don't like it? Oh, this is. I could not disagree more. I the, I've mm. always liked it. I thought Miami kind of screwed it up. Um, I, I I'm a fan of the Marlins. Yeah, that was my little league team. I have plenty of Marlins hats lying around. It just reminds me of little league baseball and um, a cool idea with the baseball in the center. That's my number two pick. And going number three, this is kind of like you said, Keezer. This one's closer to my heart. It is the 1976 to 1990 Chicago White Sox logo. It is the blue player with the red kind of handle. 
and it's got socks going about the bottom. It's cool. It's a cool logo. Incredible. It's a better jersey, I would say. I'm sure you guys could agree to that. Um, um, I own the hat. Yeah, I mean, I do too. Actually, I would. We had one year in little league baseball. I think it was like sixth grade or something. One year where they just decided to do throwback jerseys and not just the regular, the current jerseys. And luckily enough, I was the White Sox and got that hat, still kept it to this day. So that's my number three pick. All right, my number three pick has got to be the cartoon clip art looking Longhorn with the hat that has the T on it for the University of Texas. If you guys don't know. Yep. It's like a screaming, cartoonish Longhorn. I love those colors. I love the white on that, that like kind of burnt out orange look. The University of Texas is iconic. Um, I don't know. I, logo just it's it's soft and fierce at the same time. It just it's it, like it, it it would be something that I would put on lots of apparel and wear all over the place. I'm having a lot of problems with my next couple picks because I've got about <laughs> five left that I think all deserve the my third and fourth pick. One is clear cut. I'll go ahead and give that one away. My third pick is going to be the. 90s to early Vic era Falcons logo, the all black bird. Um, that is a hometown pick, but I also think it's a sick logo. Falcons still wear that coming. once or twice a year at home with the all blacks, but it's just like even if that wasn't my team, I still think I'd pick it just because it's such a slick look. Next, I do, I would go football, but I've already done two pro football teams. So I feel like I need to go baseball, but there's an insane value pick available for football still. And I'm hoping one of you take it. If not, we'll talk about it in the honorable mentions. But I'm going to take the 77 to 93 Houston Astros with the it's a uh, it's the Astrodome with kind of like a galaxy around it. It's all orange. Uh, And that was when they wore the jerseys with the orange and the blue stripes Mm -hmm. on them. Very cool scene. Nolan Ryan was on those teams for the Astros. Um, Very cool jersey slash logo uh, mix up for them. And then with the Astros too, I'm not going to take this, but when they were from 1962 to 64, they were the Colt 45s. And those jerseys just had a Colt 45 on (laughs) their uh, on their shirt. It was that was cool. But I'm going to take the 77 to 93 Astros. All right, I'm going to round it off my top four with baseball. I'm going to stay inside the city of Chicago, Dougie, but I'm going home to you. Whoa. I, this this throwback, I, I can't figure out which year it is, but it's the throwback Cubs logo with the C, and then inside the yeah. C is the small little bear cub, but it's not just the head, it's the full bear. Yeah, I mean, that was earlier. The Cubs obviously have been around for a while. I want to say that's like, I don't know, we'll, we'll look it up, but um, early Around throwback. like the early 19, yeah around the 1920s i think yeah i mean i I have (laughs) no problem with that thing i was thinking about doing that it was either that or the white Sox. try to be a little bit objective here i personally like the white Sox one more um but obviously not not a bad pick on my standard um final one i'm gonna go and i don't know if you guys will like this one or not i just think it's cool because it for me it just shows old baseball the seattle mariners yeah their their throwback um they honestly their current one are you talking about the 
Are you talking about the M? Yes, I'm talking about the M uh, with the trident, with the trident, with the the cowboy star in logo. the back. And we'll yeah. we'll post these all on Twitter too, so you guys can get the visual look. Um, but for me, the Seattle Mariners, they have a cool logo now, but the throwback with the M. Uh, I don't know. It's just one that I've recognized for a while, and it's a throwback to my childhood too. All right, I need to get this off my chest because I cannot believe this pick did not Patriots get chosen. Yeah, the 60 to 93 Patriots. I yeah, thought about I, taking I, yeah. that in the first round. I, you didn't take it at it fell four? out of your top one. <laughs> and it fell all the yeah, way. Yeah, well, look, I have the, the, the problem with me was I was my hate for the Patriots outweighed my love for that logo. And that's a problem. That's a bias I have. But I, I do think that logo is really, really cool. Uh, some other ones yeah. I had for, that I didn't mention. Uh, the Orange Crush Broncos with the big D and the Bronco coming out of the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I also had the Expos in general. That logo was sick. And I also had the 64 to 95 UCLA Bruins. It's just UCLA in script that. writing with a bear hanging over the L. It's really it's a it's a good look for them. Yeah, I also love the the old UNC logos where it's the just the mm-hmm. Ram, and then or and also the Tar Heel where it's just like the bang Tar Heel. But then also the old Jets logos where it's just the actual Jet. I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, that. pretty much all of mine were taken. I had the four that I wanted. I had the Patriots. I wasn't. I was saving them for honorable mention just because kind of like you said for selfish reasons. Yeah. I I wanted to put the four above them. Um. But I mean, honestly, there's so many different ones you could choose. What's the the Hartford Whalers? I think it is. They have yeah. a cool one. Um, a lot of I, options. The it's not it was never their primary logo. It's always been the big C for Cincinnati. But the uh, whatever they call their the guy who dresses the up big red, the big red. I think it is something. Yeah, something like that. Got the Mr. big mustache. Red. I think it's Mr. Red. That's a cool logo, even though it's not their primary one. Um, the, a cool, another cool best of to do would be uh, best of jerseys, but that's kind of similar to this. We'd love to get y'all's input, the people that listen to this show. If there's anything you want us to talk about, we certainly will. Um, yeah, send us DMs on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, we, next week's going to be pretty much the same thing. We're going to have another interview. Um, look on Twitter in the next couple of days. We'll release who that interview is going to be. Uh, we're going to do, obviously, we'll talk about NFL draft. We've got two first round picks here, and there's a lot of rumors that the Falcons are going to be moving up into the top five, which makes me really nervous. Uh, we're also going to have dun, dun, dun. part three and four of The Last Dance and hopefully a really good interview with someone some of you might know. So we're looking forward to next week. That's going to do it for today. Be sure to tune in next time for another Sideline Report. I was walking down the street when out the corner of my eye I saw a pretty little thing approaching me. She said, I never seen a man.